<clears throat> well, in our studies on Sunday evening, we've been looking at, in the past, doctrine of Scripture. Then we looked at the doctrine of God, then the doctrine of man, and now we're in the doctrine of Christ. And we talked about the doctrine of God. We looked at how God acts. We didn't necessarily look at the doctrine of, of the Trinity. And then we looked at the person of Christ. And we saw so clearly over that four-week study, looking at the person of Jesus Christ clearly, without a shadow of the doubt, the scriptures portray Christ as God in human flesh. Seven verses directly talk about Jesus being God, plus a whole plethora of other evidence that we looked at. Just just looking at who Jesus is, clearly God come to earth in human flesh, the creator, the um, God of very God, the Alpha and Omega. Now as we consider who Jesus is and I looked at the doctrine of God previous, now we can begin to ask questions. Well, how can that be when Jesus, as the Son of God, came to earth? We might have the question, and people have asked it before, well, who was running the universe when he was here? How, how, did, how did Jesus pray to God? How does that work if there is only one God? And how can God die? And how can Jesus not know certain things? How can God even enter his creation as a man? How is that even possible? So tonight we're going to begin looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. Tonight we're going to look at just foundational things, and then we'll get into some other uh, deeper discussions. You know, there's things like you know eternal subordination of the Son, eternal generation of the Son, and all these other terms that get that get um, thrown out there. And there's even quite a lot of discussions even today about some of those issues and, and specifically how they relate to not only who God is, but what that means for male and female. If you remember back with the doctrine of man, when God says, let us create man in our own image, in our likeness, and he created man, male and female. And so I argued from that text that the genders of male and female are a representation of who God is in his triunity. And so there's, we'll get into some more discussions, um, deeper discussions, but tonight I want to lay a foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, what, what I want to do tonight is a bit different uh, than most sermons. Most sermons, we, we dive into the text first, and then at the end, we give the exhortation. Uh, okay, this is in light of this truth. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to, to take, to believe, to repent of. Uh, we're actually going to start tonight with the exhortations, and then we're going to go to the text. Okay, that's why you see in your handout, uh, preparing our hearts, right at the beginning of page number one, with three different points, three different exhortations that I want to give to you. The first one is this. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. When we begin looking at the doctrine of the Trinity as Christians, we just intuitively know that this is a very important doctrine. It's one of those cardinal truths uh, that we know if we, if, we, if we go a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, we're getting into heresy. And so we don't want to be called a heretic. So we don't want to ask too many questions about the doctrine of the Trinity because we don't want to, pe- people to think us that we're, we're either naive or we're skeptical or doubting about it. So if we have legitimate questions about the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit or, or how, how do the three persons of the Trinity relate, how is that possible that we have three persons and one being? Three persons sounds a lot like three gods to me. And so we're so afraid to ask some of those questions because we're afraid of being accused of heresy or, 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 or we're abandoning the Christian faith when we ask them those questions. But I want to say tonight that we need to ask those questions. And Raquel and I were, were, were new believers in growing the Lord. We had questions about the Trinity. 
You hear, you hear that doctrine? You know, three persons and one being? Doesn't seem so right. What about the, the Holy Spirit? Is, is the Holy Spirit a person? And so we asked those kind of questions and we dug into Scripture to find the answers. So I want you to ask questions. And, um, and we're going to go to Scripture to find those answers. And if we don't ask questions, uh, then we're going to continue to be immature in our faith. Uh, we are not going to grapple with the depths of truth that God has revealed. And so we'll remain immature and weak in our faith because we haven't asked the hard questions and then dug into the scriptures to find the answers. Okay, that's the first exhortation. Ask questions. Second one. I'll get to the blanks in just a second. But perhaps you know that in the early church, there was much discussion, you know, in the first few centuries of the church, much much discussion about the doctrine of the Trinity and the nature of of Jesus Christ, his person uh, being God and man and how that all works. So many, many church councils were called, much discussion, you know, a lot of anathemas, you know, people being removed from the church, being called heretics as they had those discussions about the Trinity. And today it can almost seem that the Trinity seems now so irrelevant. It's so, it's, they, they had all those conversations, you know, almost 2000 years ago now. And really what is the relevance for us here today? They already, ham- they already hammered it out, didn't we? You just have to receive this now. And it seems so very distant. Not only does it seem distant to us, perhaps you might be tempted um, looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. It's going to be really boring, isn't it? You know, this is what the stuffy academics uh, like to discuss and debate about. And, it, and it's going to be dry. It's going to be boring. And there's going to be nothing really of practical value. You know, like you might be thinking, I, I'm struggling with sin right now. I'm struggling with how I can counsel another believer. I'm struggling with how I can how I can better communicate the gospel to a friend or a family member. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling with suffering and great anxiety in my life. And now we're going to be discussing about the Trinity. That's that's not practical. That's not going to meet my needs. And I want to challenge you on that point. And I think if we have those thoughts in our head, whether it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity or other doctrines about who God is and His person or character. It's pointing that our heart is really selfish, heartfully prideful. We're looking for things about us rather than gazing upward at who God is. And so we need to repent of selfishness. And that's your second blank. Repent, repent of selfishness. Because if we have those questions and if we mull those over and we're, we're confident that we don't need this because hey, I would rather learn crochet or watch paint dry or watch the grass grow than learn about some of these things. Uh, it's just revealing that our heart is so desperately wicked and sick. And we're so self-absorbed that we cannot turn a reflection from ourselves and to gaze at the glory of God. John seventeen three to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent is eternal life. This is not eternal life that, that begins when we die, but this is eternal life that begins now. This is abundant life, a joy-filled life, a satisfied life in knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. In fact, the highest calling for us as Christians is to, is to know Him. That's what we should be absorbed about. Our, our pursuit, like we talked about this morning, our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of sharing the gospel, it all flows out of a knowledge of God, knowing Him, having a relationship with him. And so this is of utmost importance in the Christian life to have our delight and joy knowing who God is. You can imagine yourself standing in a dark room 
Um, and in this dark room right in front of you, and you can't see it, is this amazing painting. You know, everyone's raving about this painting. This painting is worth billions of dollars. And it's right in front of you, but because of the darkness of that room, you can't see it and appreciate it. And we can be in darkness as well. We can be so self-absorbed with, with what our needs and what we consider to be a practical benefit to ourselves that we're in a dark room and God is right there standing us in the face. And he is our greatest need, the greatest joy, the greatest delight. So we need the Holy Spirit to shine the light in our heart to give us to have a, a desire to know God and to know him, how he has revealed himself to us in his triunity. So we need to repent of selfishness and selfish desires. The third thing, third exhortation before we look at the doctrine of Trinity tonight is to approach God with humility. To approach God with humility. We need to be humble. So many people approach God's truth um, with their intellect and rationality as as, as the end all be all. So as they come to the scriptures and as they see something that this to them doesn't quite make sense, well, the scriptures got to be the ones who's going to budge. You know, it doesn't make logical sense to people that you would have three persons in one being. So it cannot be true. This cannot be true. It must be false. And so rather than receiving the revelation of God and humbling ourselves before God's word, we end up correcting God's word. You have the air like the Jehovah's Witness where they changed the English translation of God's word to suit their doctrines because it's logically uh, incompatible with what their reasoning is. That you would have three persons in one being. So we must come to the scriptures with humility. Um, It's going to show the proudness of our heart if we're unable to submit to God's self-revelation. In scripture, it says that no one is like God. He says, there's none like me. To whom can we compare him? No one, nothing. Uh, there, is, there is nothing that we can compare to God, to know him. And so we should expect that God is completely other, completely different. Not something, someone that we can just wrap our minds around and say, yeah, I got it all figured out. I got all, got all figured out. No, uh, there is no one like God. So we cannot elevate our own rationality or perceived rationality ahead of God's self-revelation. Okay, otherwise we'll be blind again to see him for who he really is. I want to read this quote from William G.T. Shedd, a theologian who's, who's dead now, but we can learn from some dead guys. And he says this, I'll read the first half of his quote, talking about here approaching God with humility. The doctrine of the Trinity is the most immense of all the doctrines of religion. It is the foundation of theology. Christianity, in the last analysis, is Trinitarianism. Take out of the New Testament the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there is no God left. Take out of the Christian consciousness the thoughts and affections that relate to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there is no Christian consciousness left. The Trinity is the constitutive idea of evangelical theology and the formative idea of the evangelical experience. The immensity of the doctrine makes it of necessity a mystery, but a mystery which, like night, unfolds in its unfathomed depths, the bright stars, points of light compared with which there is no light so keen and so glittering. Mysterious as it is, 
The trinity of divine revelation is the doctrine that holds in it all the hope of man. For it holds within it the infinite pity of the incarnation and the infinite mercy of the redemption. I'll let you read the rest of that quote for yourself later on. But as we see from this quote, he is um, sharing with us this immensity of this doctrine and, it, and, its, and its necessity and its implications. And we're going to be getting into those. And so we must approach this great truth with great humility. And so what we're going to do tonight, lay the foundation uh, for the doctrine of the Trinity, and then we'll be discussing in subsequent weeks just why this is so very important. We're going to look at the delight and the joy that results in understanding who God is. Uh, we're going to look at this, the, the philosophical and the experiential uh, problems that people have struggled through from the beginning of time uh, that are completely satisfied in who God is. We're going to look at why the Trinity is so very important to the gospel and why any group that, that tries to preserve the gospel yet deny the Trinity, it's impossible. Um, and it's so very necessary. And we'll also see how the doctrine of the Trinity drives us to worship, drives us to worship. And on that thought, I want to read Jonathan Edwards' quote. Again, another fellow who's lived back in the 1700s. And he says this, about the worship of God. Sometimes only mentioning a single word caused my heart to burn within me or only seeing the name of Christ or the name of some attribute of God. And God has appeared glorious to me on account of the Trinity. It has made me have exalting thoughts of God that he subsists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The sweetest joys and delights I have experienced have not been those that have arisen from a hope of my own good estate, but in a direct view of the glorious things of the gospel. Once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with the divine and heavenly purity." I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. I'm not sure if you ever had a similar experience in your Christian walk. Um, but this um, experience of joy and delight in God arose from meditation on who God is in his triunity, the doctrine of the Trinity. So this is not meant to be a stuffy academic exercise. This is meant to fill our hearts with love for God. And so we need to uh, not be afraid to ask questions, we need to repent of selfishness and approach God with humility as we begin this topic. 
First thing we'll look at on page number two, as we look at the, lay the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. All right. I hope that doesn't surprise you. But this is typically uh, what you hear so often for groups that claim to love the Bible, but also deny the doctrines that it teaches, such as the Trinity. And they say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And to that we can answer, um, or before we give an answer, their, their logic is Trinity is not in the Bible. Therefore, it's an unbiblical doctrine because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Therefore, it's unbiblical. But according to their reasoning, I have some words written down there. Uh, for instance, the incarnation then must be unbiblical. Monotheism must be unbiblical. The rapture is unbiblical. Why? Because these words aren't in the Bible. Uh, even the Bible itself is unbiblical because the word Bible is not in the Bible. Um, God must not also be omnipresent or omniscient or omnipotent because these words don't appear in the Bible. Hopefully you recognize that there's uh, an error and flaw in this reasoning. Just because a word is not in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach what that word represents. And the same with the doctrine of the Trinity. Just because that word Trinity is not in our Bible doesn't mean that the Bible does not teach what we mean by that word Trinity. You might be wondering what that, where does that word Trinity come from then? Well, it comes from the Latin Trinitas, which Tertullian, um, in the 200s or so, late, late 100s, early 200s, uh, he coined that phrase from the Latin Trinitas, which means triad, to describe who God is, to describe this doctrine that the scriptures clearly teach. Okay, so don't be deceived by those who would say this word is not in the Bible. That's not the defining factor of whether a truth is true or not. It's it's whether the Bible teaches it or not. And the Bible does teach this doctrine. Next title you'll see is no analogy will suffice. Perhaps you've heard, well, the Trinity is like an egg. Or the Trinity is like water, you know, whether it's liquid water or water vapor or ice. Or maybe you heard the Trinity is like fire and the elements of nature or light or or it's even like our own human beings, how we have body and soul. Uh, no matter what the illustration you've heard before, uh, perhaps you're thinking, well, tonight, you know, Pastor Tim, you're going to give us a good illustration. I'm not. Uh, there is no illustration. There is no analogy for the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no analogy to describe God. All of them fall short of describing who God is. Um, none can describe the indescribable God. John MacArthur has said before, and memorably, you can't unscrew the inscrutable. Uh, and there's certain things in Scripture that we just can't lay alongside an analogy or illustration. And I want to read to you from Isaiah 40 that describes who God is and has this repeated refrain, what can you compare to him? There's nothing that compares to God. He is, he is beyond our comprehension. It doesn't mean we can't understand things about God. But in terms of comprehending all about God and who he is, we just can't. And we can't, there's, there's nothing like him by which we can make a comparison. So starting in Isaiah 40, verse 13, it says this, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. 
To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And the answer to these rhetorical questions are there is nothing. There's nothing to compare to God. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable or inscrutable, as it says in the New American Standard. And so we see here how God is described as beyond comprehension. And this is why no analogy, whether it's egg or water or fire or light or even humans themselves, no analogy can sufficiently describe who God is. So where we turn then, besides analogies? Three foundational truths. So on page number three, we have three foundational truths. And we're going to go over these three foundational truths as we lay the introduction here tonight. Three pillars. First one, there is only one God. The scriptures teach this clearly. There is only one God. And we're going to give some scriptural support for this, these statements in a second. Okay? There's only one God. Number two, the Father, as revealed in scripture, is divine. The Son is divine. And the Spirit is divine. We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being referred to as God in the scripture. And yet there's only one God. And the third point, the Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same. There's a distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. These three pillars are the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm going to show you how Scripture so clearly teaches each one. First one, there's only one God. There's only one God. And right under there you have a blank saying that this monotheism is the doctrine or belief that there is only one God. Monotheism. And in case uh, you're wondering or haven't heard, Christians are monotheistic. We believe in one God, okay? Uh, we are not polytheists. We are not, pan we don't believe in pantheism. We are monotheists. There is only one God. Here's a few scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, with all that is in it. Okay, all of it belongs to the Lord your God. Not a plurality of gods. Isaiah 43.10 You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. 
Okay? No God before me, no God after me. Only one God. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God doesn't know of any other gods. There's none. None before him, none after him. He declares the end from the beginning. He says, show me another God who can declare the future. Bring him, bring him front. I don't know of any gods that can do that because there are none. There is only one God. Lastly, Isaiah 45 starting in verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now, if you ask my kids after the service, they might be able to sing a song to you for that verse. Um, but it's so clear. As we see this verse, and we see the other verses, so clear in Scripture, there is only one God. Okay? So we see that foundation, that pillar of truth that relates to the doctrine of Trinity. There's only one God. Number two, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Now, again, we might be thinking, well, how is that rationally possible? But we have to look at what the Scriptures teach. And the Scriptures teach that the Father... God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Let's start with the Father is God. John six twenty seven. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God, the Father, has set a seal. Who's God? God the Father. John twenty seventeen. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So when Jesus says my father, he's saying my God. Okay, I'm going, I'm going to God. The father is God. Romans 1.7 To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our father and Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.1 1, 1, He says God the father who raised him, Jesus, from the dead. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now that's a bit of a head-scratcher, but we'll get and try to dig into some of these truths. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four says this, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay, quite clear. The Father in Scripture is referred to as God. Okay, you know that one. Number two, the Son, or B. The Son is called God. These passages we've already read in previous weeks. I'm just going to read a couple of them here. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Talking about the Son, Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Okay, quite clearly. Son of God is God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, 
the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 20, 28, Thomas answers to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Okay, and you see the other text on there, three more texts, all refer to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as God. And so we have to affirm, the scriptures teach that. The Father is God, the Son is God. Now see, the Spirit. The Spirit is God. Reading from Acts 5, starting in verse number 1. It says this, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, okay, they knew this, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? To the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? But to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And his wife was about to join him as she continues to lie. And so we see here they sold a piece of land, and they they, they were free to keep a portion of that proceed and say, Here, we're, we're giving some of the proceeds, but no, they meant to lie and say, Well, here, they wanted to show how generous they were by secretly holding some back. Uh, lying, and Peter here says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you've not lied to man, but to God. Equating the Holy Spirit and God. And if the Holy Spirit is like a force, like Jehovah's Witness and others would say, how do you lie to a force? How do you lie to an impersonal thing like electricity? You can't. And so Peter is saying here, you have lied to God. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Whose temple are you? You're God's temple. Who lives in you? God lives in you. I mean, God's spirit lives in you. It's the same thing. God lives in you. Jesus promised he'd be with you. And how's he going to be with us? With the spirit. So again, we have God's spirit being equated here with God. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay? The Lord, Yahweh, given the law to Moses, the Lord is the Spirit. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Again, the Spirit of God is equated. It's God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God here is, is um, so powerful in his knowledge 
Uh, he has he has all knowledge. He's all knowing. He's omniscient. Even knowing the thoughts of God. Again, because the Spirit of God is referred to as God. John 3, 5-7, last text here. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Then you cross-reference that to what he says in 1 John. talks about being born of God. Being born of the Spirit and being born of God are the same thing in Scripture. Again, because the Spirit is God. And so we have these three truths that there is one, one God and that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all referred to as God in the Scripture. And then this third foundational truth, number three on page number five, the Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same. Okay? You might be thinking, well, maybe, as some have perceived in the past, well, maybe there's, there's one God, but God has made himself known just in different modes, in different ways. They call this modalism. That is, uh, it's almost like Superman and Clark Kent. You know, Clark Kent's there with the glasses, the hairdo, and he's, and he's a newspaper reporter. And then all of a sudden, he just changes the hair a little bit. He takes off the glasses and rips open his shirt, and then nobody recognizes him because now he's Superman. Okay, people perceive that's the same thing that God is doing, that in the Old Testament, he was more the father figure. And then in the New Testament time, he has revealed himself in the person of the son. He's put on a different different vestment, different clothing. And now in our day and age, he's the spirit. But it's the same one God, but he's just come in and out of a phone booth, so to speak, and different wardrobe. That's not true at all. The father and son and spirit are, are not the same. Not the same. Isaiah forty-eight sixteen. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now what's significant about there? Who's talking? The person talking there is a suffering servant. The same suffering servant we see in Isaiah 53. This is the Christ. This is the son of God. This is Jesus. And so as he speaks, he's saying here that the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. We have all three persons of the Trinity here in the Old Testament in Isaiah 48. Matthew 3, same thing, 16 to 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So here we have the son coming out of the water. Here we have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And here we have the voice from heaven as the father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's no way that Clark Kent being Superman can, can talk to himself in this kind of manner like we see here in Matthew 3. There's distinctions. They're not the same. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Our great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. We know the Father is God and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And again, elevating the divine nature of each Father, Son, and Spirit to, to equate them in this way. And that yet we see distinctions between Father, Son, and Spirit. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. we see the same thing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All three persons of the Trinity. Ephesians 4, 4 to 7. Again, all three persons again. There is one body and one spirit. 
Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, okay, the Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There we have, again, all three persons of the Trinity as a distinction. They're, they're not the same. First Peter one, First Peter 1, verse number 2. According to the knowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. And so what we see from these texts is quite clearly these three foundational truths. And this really lays the groundwork for our discussions coming up in subsequent weeks about the doctrine of the Trinity. There is only one God. Scriptures clearly teach that. The Scriptures teach that God the Father is God, that God the Son is God, that God the Spirit is God. And the Scriptures also teach that Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same. Now, how do those three truths that we saw the scriptures clearly teach, how do those fit together into our brain such that we can conceive and understand who God is? Well, that's going to be our task in the coming weeks. And then to see how that has benefits in our hearts for worship and for joy and how that, that divine nature of God makes the gospel of redemption possible. And, uh, and so I, and so I trust that uh, God will, Christ will tarry a bit longer as we continue this uh, discussion, uh, probably later on in August and into September. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. God, I do thank you that we can just begin uh, looking at who you are here tonight to lay these three foundational truths. God, we recognize that you are one being and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that there is equality in essence and nature between Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet we see distinctions in terms of role or function. And God, in, in coming weeks as we begin to explore these things, I pray that we would stand firmly on these three foundational truths that we've looked at tonight. That you are one God. And yet you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And how the persons of the Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same, but yet there are distinctions. So there is a triunity in unity. And so God, we just pray that as we continue to explore this, uh, that we would be thinking of good questions to be able to ask the scriptures and how you have revealed yourself and that we would be driven to worship and to wonder and adoration and awe at who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.